Well, good morning. It is great to see all of you. We are delighted that you're here, some joining us virtually as well, but we're so glad to see you. How are you? I've been asking that question this morning. I've uh, gotten a variety of answers this morning. Some uh, doing well, some, hey, some are here that we've been praying for. We're so thankful for that. We have many others to be praying for. I've always appreciated, uh, normally, customarily, and generically, many times that question, how are you, is answered, I'm fine, I'm fine. That's the generic answer. I've always appreciated when, when the response is given, and I'm not soliciting this response to you, but just saying I appreciate it, that some respond with a cheerful, enthusiastic, and grateful, blessed, I'm blessed. Some even say, Let's see, there was a lady I used to deliver food to at uh, HEPA Apartments behind Cottage Hill that would answer, I'm blessed and highly favored. And I, I thought, wow, you are blessed and highly favored. The word blessed, I wanted to just bring before you to get you to think about that because that's the way Jesus begins the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But from the world's perspective, blessed. When is a person blessed? Would the world agree with this statement? Blessed are you when everything is going your way. Or blessed are you when your dreams come true. Everybody in the world would agree with that, wouldn't they? Blessed. But Jesus... In, in this greatest sermon ever preached, is giving a whole different perspective. He's turning the world upside down and worldly values in particular upside down. We cited the first beatitude. The second beatitude, again, would be just as striking. When he begins with this term blessed, and it has to do with a deep abiding joy, and he's saying he's describing those who can have that deep abiding joy in his kingdom. And so beatitude number two, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And imagine hearing that. And he's talking about blessedness, this deep abiding joy. And you, you hear the second statement, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the word for mourn there is a strong term. In fact, in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, when it talks about Jacob mourning the loss or what he understood to be the loss of his son Joseph, this word is used. And notice what it says, Genesis 37. Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. For I shall go down, he said, I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. This was his favored son, his favorite son. And so when he and his brothers have brought that coat of many colors that he had gifted to his favorite son, and with that blood on it, the implication that they were trying, the deception they were trying to pull over was that he had been torn apart by a wild beast, that he was dead. And Jacob looks at that evidence 
And even though it's false, he believes it. And so his mourning, his grief is deep. And he says, I'm going to go to my grave mourning for my, for my son. William Barclay says of this type of mourning, it's, it's the kind of grief which takes hold of a man and it cannot be hidden. It is not only the sorrow which brings an ache to the heart, it's the sorrow which is the unrestrainable, which brings unrestrainable tears to the eyes. Again, the message is how striking this would be to hear it and for us to read it even today. Blessed are those who mourn. And it's a deep mourning. But remember the promise that's attached. For they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. Who are the blessed mourners? As Jesus is speaking here in this great, great sermon, who are the blessed mourners? I want us to take a look at that this morning. I want to say something very profound. It's early in the morning, so you've had a, a, a great night's sleep, so I think you're ready to hear this very profound statement. Here it is. Verse 4 follows verse 3. That's profound, isn't it? I've, I've been working on that all week. But the idea here is to connect the first beatitude with the second. The first beatitude that we studied last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we studied how Jesus is not talking about being poor financially or materially, but being poor, bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt in the sight of God. That means we have nothing to offer. We're completely dependent upon God. And the picture that we saw of that was this publican, this tax collector that Jesus tells about in, the, in a parable who wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's overwhelmed with his spiritual poverty, if you will, bankruptcy. And he's completely dependent on the mercy and grace of God. That's poverty of spirit. And this second beatitude follows that is immensely connected. So Jesus, based on that spiritual bankruptcy, says, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And the mourning is over the poverty of spirit. It's recognizing that without the mercy and grace of God... We are spiritually bankrupt. And when we observe that condition within ourselves, that brings terrible mourning. We mourn that condition before God. One writer says it's plain from the context that those who are here promised comfort are not primarily those who mourn the loss of a loved one, though Jesus gives the greatest comfort in that scenario as well. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about those who mourn their loss of innocence, those who mourn their loss of righteousness or self-respect. It's not the sorrow of bereavement that Jesus is addressing. It's the sorrow of repentance. So yes, verse 4 follows verse 3. And this mourning is, is following that understanding of our spiritual poverty, bankruptcy before God. It's the second stage of spiritual blessing, if you will. Paul would call it 
godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 as uh, an explanation, if you will, of what Jesus is speaking about. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You'll see Paul contrasts two different types of sorrow. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. What's the difference between uh, the two? Let's talk about worldly sorrow. What does that entail? Worldly sorrow may be sorrow that one has been found out. Here's someone who's been engaged in sin and it's discovered. And because of that discovery, they feel remorse. But the remorse is more that it's been discovered, not the sin itself. Sorrow for the worldly sorrow may be sorrow for the hurt that it may have caused others. And that's, a, that's an appropriate sorrow to feel. That because of my sin, I've impacted my family, my friends, my church family. And to be remorseful for that is appropriate. But if that's all the sorrow we feel, it's just for the hurt that we've caused. That's not really at the heart of the sorrow that Jesus is talking about. There is sorrow for the consequences that one must endure because of a wrong choice. And those consequences can be very difficult to endure. And that brings sorrow. But that may fall under still this idea of worldly sorrow. What is godly sorrow? Godly sorrow includes seeing sin as God sees it. Godly sorrow is feeling badly about our sin because of what it has done to God. It's broken not only the law of God, but the heart of God. And because of that, we're convicted and we are truly remorseful that we have, that we have caused this disappointment, this sadness in the sight of God. Here's a picture that I think will help us understand the type of mourning, the type of sorrow that that Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember David. You remember David. You remember his terrible sin with Bathsheba and the pain that that caused in his own life, the life of his family, and the life of the kingdom of Israel. He was pained with that. And for a period of time, Psalm 32 alludes to this, he tried to conceal it. And you may think, well, he may have thought, out of sight, out of mind, I've covered my tracks here. Everybody thinks that uh, the baby that Bathsheba uh, has born is, is mine, and so I've covered it up beautifully. And we may think, he may have thought that he got away with it. But the, then Psalm 32 also tells us how he was having restless nights and this and the guilt was overwhelming him. And finally, some say about a year later, Nathan the prophet is sent by God to confront David and tells him a little story. It's a hook that, that gets David caught up in this story. And, and the message is, you are the man. You're the one that's taken something that doesn't belong to you. And just as you were outraged and said that man should be brought to judgment, so you are the man. So David's confronted with his sin. So what does he do? 
he repents. And he expresses things such as this in Psalm 51. This is after Nathan confronted him. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Do you see that? He's acknowledging he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned himself. He sinned against his nation. But he says, against you and you only have I sinned. That's that godly sorrow. And later in Psalm 51, he would write, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. He's describing his own brokenness. He's describing his own grief, his, his deep mourning for the sin that he has committed and his longing for the forgiveness and grace of God. Again, William Barclay says, the thing that really changes people is when they suddenly come up, up against something which opens their eyes to what sin is and to what sin does. And that's what David was confronted with. And in response, not only is he poor in spirit, not only does he recognize his spiritual bankruptcy, now he's mourning. He's deeply sorrowful, godly sorrowful for, for his sin. What is it that will cause us to recognize sin in our own life and what it does? Really, the ultimate thing is the cross of Christ. Because when we consider the cross of Christ, what we see is what sin can do. Sin can take the loveliest life in all the world and nail it to a cross. And then when we make that connection that it's my sin that put him there, then these beatitudes begin to be very real to us. We recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. We recognize our sin and we are mourning over it. So William Barclay summarizes this by saying, Blessed is the man who is intensely sorry for his sin, the man who is heartbroken for what his sin has done to God and to Jesus Christ, the man who sees the cross and who is appalled by the havoc wrought by sin. We will truly mourn, folks, when our hearts are broken by things that break the heart of God. And again, this is, this is the bad news. But this is the progression that Jesus is taking us through. These are the steps to, to being understanding the values of, of his kingdom. These are the steps that it takes to, to become right with God. These are the steps that we go through in order to understand what spiritual maturity is and the blessings that come with recognizing these things in our own personal lives. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. Here's the good news. These mourners will be blessed because their conviction of and their sorrow for sin will drive them into the forgiving arms of God. Probably one of the best-known parables of Jesus is the parable of the prodigal son. 
Many of, you, many of you, if you can't quote it, you can tell the story without reading in Luke chapter 15. You remember the younger of two sons asked for his inheritance early and went into a distant land away from the influence, the authority of his father and spent his inheritance in riotous living, ending up where? In the pig pen. And for Jews, pigs were unclean. He's at the lowest of the lowest of occupations. And there, the scripture says, verse 17, he came to himself. He came to his senses. And he thought about home. He thought about home. And how even his father's servants were doing much better than he was in the pig pen. So he is spiritually and materially and financially impoverished. He is poor in spirit. And he mourns his choices that have led him to the pig pen. And, he, and he's penitent. And he determines, I'm going to go back to my father and just ask to be a, a servant. Not a son, but a servant in his house. And so he had a speech prepared. And you'll remember verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Here was somebody who had gone through the first two stages of the Beatitudes. He was poor in spirit. He was mourning his sinful condition. And it caused him to think of his heavenly father or his father and to go back home. And it's what's pictured here is, is someone who goes through these first two stages. It will drive them to the, to, to the Father. It will cause them to go to the Father to say, Father, please accept me. And what, what we find is the Father ready to embrace us. And to welcome us not as a slave, but as a son. They shall be comforted, Jesus says. How does God comfort us? Let me remind you of three ways. Number one, he comforts us through his presence. Through his presence. You see, coming to, to him in penitence and trusting obedience brings reconciliation. And what, what the blessed mourner is assured of is that Though you have sinned, you have mercy, you have grace, and now we are reconciled because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And I am with you. I am with you. I'm no longer separated from you because of, of your sin. That sin has been washed away, and we are reconciled, and I am with you. And when he says, I am with you, I love what Hebrews 13, 5 says. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Blessed mourners are comforted knowing God is present. Number two, these blessed mourners are comforted through the practice of biblical community. That is the church. You see, when someone who's gone through those first two stages of poverty of spirit and then mourning their condition... And they run to the Father and find Him willing to embrace them as, as children. Other arms should be extended to them. 
And that is the arms of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are saying welcome home as well. I included Ephesians 2.19 um, under this point. And the backdrop of this verse, Paul writing to the Christians at Ephesus, reminding them some had been Jews, some had been Gentiles, but through their trusting obedience, they had become one in Christ. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You at once were at enmity, but now you're united. Your brothers and sisters, you're all members of the family of God. You see, God comforts through his people. God comforts through his people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is writing about a difficult time that he had endured. And he, he's not specific, but he tells us some of what was going on in his heart and mind. He says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. On the outside, they were conflicts, likely persecution, likely trials that they were going through. And how did they respond to that on the inside? They were fearful. Sometimes we may encounter things in our lives. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. That describes something we may go through. But watch this, verse, the very next verse. Paul says, Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. God who comforts the downcast. We were comforted by, God, by that same God. And how so? Through the coming of Titus. Someone with skin on his, on his body. A, a person representing the God who comforts the downcast. Titus. And, and the reason was that Titus brought good news about the well-being of the Christians there that Paul was concerned about. But the point is, God comforts through his, through his people. Let me give a personal example. Next time you see Alan Eldridge, a preacher at Regency, well, I hope it's not in the hospital. But if you go into the hospital, you'll likely see Alan Eldridge. He, uh, he does so well about visiting people. Members of Regency, members of Creekwood, it doesn't matter. Uh, he'll visit. I like to be just like that. One time I was in pre-op, about to undergo surgery. Patrice and I were in the pre-op room. And in walks Alan Eldridge. <laughs> I started, tears came to my eyes. I'm used to being the one coming in to see folks. And now here's somebody coming to see me. I was comforted by the coming of Alan into pre-op. How many times have you been comforted by a member of God's family coming to you in a time of need. 
And how many times can we be those comforters sent by God, the, the God who, who comforts the downcast? We can be those conduits of comfort. And especially when one has, has recognized a spiritual poverty and is so sorrowful for that and, and longs to be right with God, who, who trusts God and obeys God and receives His mercy, to find people, not just God, but His people, who are ready to embrace and welcome home. God comforts through the practice of biblical community. And thirdly, God comforts through the promise of heaven. That's the ultimate comfort. That's the ultimate comfort. When Jesus comes, the problem of sin and so many other problems are going to be completely eradicated. As long as sin is a part of our existence, mourning will be a part of our existence. But one day, one day, in that final state of glory, Christ's comfort will be complete because only then will sin be no more. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I've told you before and I say again, I want to go to heaven not just because of who will be there, but because of what will not be there. No more sin. No more suffering. No more death. No more of those things that wreak havoc in our lives today. God comforts us with the promise of heaven. So blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they shall be comforted. The way to the joy of forgiveness and the blessedness of comfort is through the desperate sorrow of the broken heart. But here's what Jesus does for you and for me. He takes us from grief to glory. From grief to glory. It's a painful process. Because we're confronted with our own sinfulness and our own mourning for our sins. But it's when we go through those stages that Jesus is taking us to a place where sorrow and sin will be no more. From grief to glory. It may be that you're in those early stages of what Jesus is describing you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy and you are sorrowful for your sin and you, you long for the mercy of God. The good news is because Jesus died on the cross for our sins that he's made that mercy, that grace available. If only we'll surrender and, and humbly submit to his will. That will include confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. It will include turning from our sin and turning to follow Him as a way of life. It will include being buried in the waters of baptism so the blood of Jesus can wash away your sins. It may be that you're ready to do that. And if so, we'd love to assist you even this morning to obey the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It may be that we've gotten off track 
We still, we can experience what Jesus is, is speaking about in the Beatitudes even after becoming a Christian. When we're convicted of our sin in our lives as Christians, the good news is that because of Jesus, we can come back home. We can, like the prodigal son, make our way back to the Father. And what we find is a Father with His arms wide open, ready to embrace us, along with all of His people who are so like-minded. If you are longing for that embrace, if you need to come back home, or if you have something that you would like for this church family to pray for, we'd love to. Won't you come right now as we stand and sing?